You heard it here first. It's a phrase that TV newscasts prided themselves on not even 50 years ago. Because if you're reporting the news, it's important to be the first one there. To be the first one to give the new information, to tell the story. Because that usually meant more viewership, right? If you could say, you heard it here first on Channel 6 News, more people were likely to go back to Channel 6 News to hear that information the next time. But you don't hear it often anymore, do you? And that's because most of us hold in our pocket a device that connects us to just about all the information on the face of the earth as it happens. The idea of someone breaking the story first is almost impossible to track down. And that's a good thing. It's good that we know information. It's good that God gave us the blessing of technology and the internet that allows us to know more things at a faster speed. But you also know that every good thing that God makes, Satan tries to twist and our sinful natures help. And so along with the ability to know things at a faster speed have come some unintended consequences. The fact that most of us, when we hear the phrase fake news, don't think of the onion anymore, says something about what that fast-paced news reel has done to us. We're unsure, right? We're unsure if the story is true. Is it made up or is it at least twisted or biased in some way trying to manipulate me to think something is true that might not be totally true? We're starting a brand new sermon series today called You Heard It Here First. Because we want to remember that the Christmas story is not fake news, but good news. And the hope of this newspaper-themed series is that it's going to impact two different types of people. First of all, those who believe the story is true. That would be mostly Christians, right? Those who would call themselves followers of Jesus. You believe the story is true. You've probably heard it 50 or 100 or maybe more times. You know what happens at the nativity. You know about the shepherds and the wise men and the whole thing. But you lose sight of the impact of that story. And the craziness of the Christmas season, the hustle and bustle, it it becomes this sort of sentimental thing that you like to do because it makes you feel comfortable, but you forget that it's real history, that it, that it really impacts your life. You can maybe think of it like this. Uh, pretend you're sitting and watching Netflix with somebody, maybe a good friend, and they're very engrossed in the show. So you look over at them and you realize there's a spider crawling up their neck. And so you say to them, there's a spider on your neck. But they're so engaged with the show, they think to themselves, that's eh, whatever. So they say back to you, yeah, there's a spider on my neck. Until about three seconds later, when they yell, there's a spider on my neck, and slap their neck to kill the spider. See, they heard your words, but they didn't think through the implications of those words. And very often, when it comes to these stories that we read every year, the same thing can happen to those of us who call ourselves Christians. The stories can be sentimental, they can be beautiful, they can remind us of our childhood, but we forget that they're real true history that impacts our life. This series is also meant to help another group of people, those who are skeptical. Those who would say, I can't believe the stories because I think they're all legends. I can't believe that Christianity is true because it's all man-made propaganda to start a political movement. I can't believe that Christmas is true because it just 
seems so unbelievable. And you want me to believe that there was a, a man who was also God born in this time of year? If you thought any of those things, or if you currently think any of those things, I'm glad you're here. Because this series is meant to answer some of those objections. In fact, most of them are going to answer today. So today's big idea, if you're taking notes with us, is we're going to figure out if this story is a true story. I hope you'll find at the end of this that Christmas is a true story. And we're not going to work out many of the implications today, but we do have to set a foundation for this series and make sure that we understand it is true history that actually happened. And to do that, we're going to look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read those for you. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the gospel of the Lord. Uh, Through this text, we're going to learn four things, and they kind of overlap a little bit, but to give us a little bit of outline for our thoughts today, we're going to talk about Luke's gospel, and specifically, who his audience is, the purpose of his writing, the method for his badness, and fourth, the content of his gospel. And hopefully, by going through those four, we will answer that question, did Christmas actually happen? So the audience, purpose, method, and content. Um, First of all, the audience Uh, Luke says that he addresses this gospel to a man named Theophilus, and he calls him most excellent. So who is this Theophilus guy? Uh, First of all, we have to take up his title. Luke calls him most excellent, which is a term of respect, I would say, or dignity. Um, In the same way that you might say about uh, a, a, um, a judge that he is your honor, or about the queen that she is her majesty, Uh, You would say about a person, if they were dignified, a person of high status in your society, that they were most excellent. We can hear from this Luke already admitting that Theophilus is a highly educated and highly dignified person. He's not some schmuck. He's a guy who understands how the world works. He wouldn't have got to the place that he is in life if if that weren't the case. We also know from his name, which is a Greek name, that he was probably not a lifelong Christian. More than likely, as a Gentile, he had come to the Christian faith later in his life. Um, Some commentators will even make the comment that uh, Theophilus was probably not even a Christian when Luke wrote this gospel to him. Uh, The argument goes that at the end of that text that we read, uh, Luke says to Theophilus, you can have certainty about the things that you were taught. And that word taught is taught in the sense of informed rather than like instructed step-by-step in school, right? And so the argument goes, uh, he had heard about the gospel, but he had not yet been instructed from the scriptures that this is what happened. Um, That's not an airtight argument, but it at least gives you a picture into Theophilus that he was at least somewhat skeptical. Whether he was a Christian or he wasn't a Christian, he was questioning these things. Like, how did this actually happen? Did this actually happen, Luke? Can you investigate this for me? He wanted proof. He wanted research. He wanted evidence that what was being said about Jesus at that time was true history. And so, Theophilus is the perfect picture of the average educated Canadian, isn't he? I mean, even though you may not get people to call you most excellent, you are definitely some of the highest educated people in the world. 
you're skeptical, you need proof, you want research, many of you have not been Christians your whole life, or even if you are Christians, you want to know the answers. If you're taking notes with us, the next fill in the blank is that Luke is written for the average Canadian. Like God, seeing in the future almost 2,000 years, knew that there would be a country up here where people would be highly educated and skeptical, and so he made sure to include a piece of scripture that would answer those questions that we have about whether this actually happened or not. Canadians want evidence. They want research. They don't want to just take things at face value because we know. We know there's fake news out there. We know there's spin. And so Luke has written for us. So that's the audience. That's who Theophilus is. And I suppose in a way you could put yourself in his shoes as you hear these words. The next part is the purpose. Luke says to Theophilus that he is writing him an orderly account so that he may know with certainty. Now maybe you've heard this claim before, or maybe you've thought this claim, it's kind of popular in an area like Toronto, that you can, you can learn some things from Jesus you can learn moral teachings. You can get some inspiration for life. Like he's a good an author, a character to know. But you can't actually trust that the stories really happened. They're legends. They've evolved over years. There's been transmission errors. These uh, stories were written to prove a point or to make a political movement move forward. So you can't actually know that these things really happened. And Luke wants to take that on and say, no, actually you can. I'm writing this so that you have certainty. Luke is writing this gospel about the year 55 AD. It's arguable, but it's definitely somewhere in the middle of the 50s. Jesus dies and rises from the dead about year 30. And by the time that Luke is writing in the mid-50s, there are already accounts circulating about what happened in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. One of them, probably the most notable, was the Gospel of Mark. It was already written at this point and was already being used to tell people the story of Jesus. Some scholars even say that Matthew was probably written by this time as well. So why doesn't Luke just go to Theophilus and say, hey, my buddy Mark, he wrote a thing, you should read it, that's how you're going to know who Jesus is. Why doesn't he do that? Because he wants to give you an orderly account that gives you certainty. Any of you who know how historical science works understand this? Like, how do you know anything happened in history? Because you have multiple accounts of the same event from different angles that say the same thing, right? Like if one person comes and says, here's what happened, that's at least a reason to believe that it maybe happened, but that's not very good evidence. But if 12 people come and say, this is what happened, there's a very likely chance that it did, right? And so Luke is actually going back through the story and checking, making sure that this stuff actually happened. In writing his own account of those things from the eyewitnesses that he interviewed and the stories that are already out there so that there could be another piece of evidence for Theophilus so that he could understand that this is a certain fact. This actually happened. Now let me talk through the implications of that a little bit. Because if, if Luke is writing again what Mark or maybe Matthew or some others have already written, then he wants us to understand that the history is what matters. Yes, there are teachings, yes, there are sayings, yes, there are ideas in the scriptures, but if Luke is writing another orderly account so we can know what happened with certainty, he wants us to understand that that historical fact really happened. Uh, If you're taking notes with us, that's the next fill in the blank. Luke is writing history. He's writing history so that we can understand that this has a claim on our life. 
I mean, think about it. If you're part of a religion that is basically about teachings or about philosophy or about how to live your life, it doesn't really matter if it's rooted in history at all. Anybody can say it's a good idea to love your neighbor. Anybody can say it's a good idea to pay your taxes or not kill anybody or not sleep with somebody else's spouse. Anybody can say that. That doesn't need to be rooted in history. But Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's not just a it's not just a legend. It's not just a moral way of living. It's real historical fact. And therefore, it has a claim on your life, whether you like it or not. It's the same as if a war happens and, and there's some effect on the civilians during the, uh, because of the war. The civilians maybe had no say in the war. They maybe didn't want the war to happen, but it doesn't matter. It affected them. Think about the latest election. You maybe didn't vote for the Liberal Party, but they're in power. You can't do anything about it. You can't change it. You just have to live with it. In the same way, Christianity is a historical religion, which means you can't just explain it away by saying, I don't like it, or I don't believe that, or that doesn't work for me. Like, the scripture doesn't care if you don't like it. It's real history, which means you have to have a historically verifiable way to say that it didn't happen in order to explain it away. So Luke is writing history. And there are a couple indications that he's writing history. Um, besides the fact that he says, I'm writing history, I'm writing an account, right, of what's happening. It's really interesting as you read through the book of Luke, how many real historical elements he throws into the text. Maybe you've, ever, you've had this conversation with somebody um, who's kind of a meanderer in conversation. Like they're trying to get to a point, they're trying to tell a story, but they throw in like a whole bunch of extra facts that don't really matter. And you're like, would you just keep, keep moving? Come on. Luke kind of does that. He throws in a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't really advance the narrative, but just helps us understand that it really happened and people really saw it. Um, I want to give you an example of this from the first story that Luke records of Jesus' adult life, his ministry. Uh, Jesus is going to the temple and he's going to read from the scripture. This is Luke chapter 4. I'm just going to read you the text and then I want to pull something out of it for you. Uh, Luke chapter 4 says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Then it says, he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Did you see that? That one verse in there that didn't advance the narrative at all? The eyes of all were fastened on him. What does that do for the story? Nothing, right? It's only something that would be included because someone was there and saw it happen. They saw the drama of everything that was going on as Jesus sat down and spoke the words, I'm the fulfillment of that scripture. Uh, If you don't believe me, I want to give you the testimony of another Christian similar to Theophilus in many ways. A man who was highly educated, who was skeptical, but eventually found that this was true history. Uh, You may know him, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote this about the Gospels as history. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. So if someone tells me that something in a gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read, how well his palate is trained in detecting them by the flavor, not how many years he's spent on a gospel. Either this is reportage 
or else some unknown writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, if Luke is writing to make up a story, then he created a genre that was not used again until hundreds of years later. And it just so happened that everyone else who wrote about Jesus used the exact same genre. Uh, we have this genre in, in um, the modern day where we write, a, a, well, he calls it a modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. Um, the idea being that there's a story and you tell it, but it's a made-up story with enough detail to make it seem like it's a true story. That's a new idea in literature. But Luke was already doing that if he's making it up. Unless, of course, he's not making it up. And it's real history, and he's writing down exactly what happened because, well, you heard it from the people who were there. You can't read the Gospels as moral teaching or as legends. You have to read them as history. That's what they are on face value. And like I said, you don't have to believe it, but you have to take it at face value and read it like it's real history. So that's the audience and the purpose. Let's talk about the method. Uh, Luke goes about obtaining his information by what he calls investigation, right? I thoroughly investigated all this from the beginning. Well, what does that mean? Um, Luke actually has a great advantage, right? Because there have already been pieces of literature written about what happened with Jesus that he can go back and check. Uh, If you're taking notes, that's the next fill in the blank. Luke is double-checking the story. It's hard to investigate something that you don't know there are any claims about, right? But if there are claims that someone has said, Jesus did this or said this, well, then you can go back and say, did that thing actually happen? In other words, it's easier to disprove something than to prove it, right? So Luke goes back to the eyewitnesses. Jesus is crucified in 30 AD or so. Luke is writing about 25 years later. There are people who were there who are still alive today. They can tell you what happened. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in that lesson we read from Corinthians, says as much. Corinthians would have been written about the same time as the Gospel of Luke, and Paul seems to think there are 500 people who all saw Jesus at the same time, and many of them are still alive. You can go check with them. If this were written 100 or 150 years later, the story could have been corrupted, I suppose, because there's no one there who was there to say, yeah, that's actually not what happened. But Luke is writing within a generation of these events, And he's investigating them by going back and double-checking the story. Luke can go right to the sources, which means that there's a high likelihood that it actually happened. That's the method. Last thing, then, let's talk about the content. I'm going to give you the next fill-in-the-blank right away. The content of Luke is too counterproductive not to be true. I want you to dwell on that for a second. The content of Luke is too counterproductive not to be true. What I mean by this is if Luke was starting a religion or trying to propagate a religion that was made up, he would not have written his gospel the way that he did. There are far too many things in the gospel that are counterproductive to the movement of Christianity to make this a made-up story. If you're trying to start a fake religion, you don't do what Luke did. But if it's real, true history, then you write down the real, true history. Let me give you three examples. Just think of these three major events in Jesus' life, his birth, his death, and his resurrection. Let's take them in reverse order. So first, his resurrection. 
Luke and the other gospel writers record for us that the first people to see Jesus alive at his resurrection were women, two women. If you're making up a religion, don't start by the first witnesses being women. Because in their culture, a woman's testimony was not admissible evidence in court. To say that a woman saw something would be as useless as saying a dog saw something in their culture. And that's unfortunate. Yes, we hate that, but that was the reality, right? And so into that culture, Luke and the other gospel writers say, nope, two women saw him because it really happened. Think about Jesus' death. The night before his death, what is he doing? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to get out of it. Right, Lord, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to suffer this way. If there's any other way that we can do this salvation of the world thing, please let it happen. If you're making up a religion, why do you make your Savior look like a person who wants to get out of it? Shouldn't your Savior be this majestic hero who never falters, never wavers? No, Jesus is there saying, I don't want to go to the cross. If that's not, if that's not a headline, I don't know what is. <laughs> Jesus does not want to go to the cross. Now, there is a sense in which he does want to go to the cross. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But he didn't go there because he liked it. He didn't go there because he wanted to. He did it because there was something worth it to him on the other side. And that was you. You were worth it. And so he endured the cross so that he could have you. Finally, think about Jesus' birth. First of all, think of it in, in just a minor sense. Like Luke it goes out of his way to make sure there's a huge, long birth narrative at the beginning of his gospel. The other gospel writers don't do this. Mark doesn't even mention the birth of Christ at all. Matthew got, gives it sort of a passing comment, like when it came, for, came, uh, came time for the baby to be born. But Luke gives us two whole chapters about it. Why does Luke do that? If it's a moralistic story to make you be a better person or inspire you to live a certain way, what is that doing for you? What's the moral of the story of the birth of Jesus? Don't have babies out of wedlock? Maybe make reservations at your hotels so that no one says there's no room for you in the inn? There's no moral to the story, right? And then in a holistic sense, like why write a moralistic story about Jesus? What's Jesus' whole life teaching you to do? Get born and live nice to everybody so that you get killed? Doesn't really inspire me. Unless, of course, it really happened, and Jesus' birth is a huge piece of the puzzle of why he exists at all. Like, he had to be born so that he could be human, so that he could die for humanity. If Jesus is not human, then your sins are not forgiven. He has to be human, and so the birth narrative is a huge piece of what Jesus is doing. See, the content of Luke's gospel is not primarily teachings or sayings. It's actions. Yes, there are teachings and there are sayings, and those things will inspire you to do better in your life, but they cannot do it unless you understand the actions. Remember last week, we talked through Matthew chapter 6, and we said the law of the Lord, the Ten Commandments explained by Jesus, basically, basically cut us all off at the knees. We can't do it. If you think the Bible is here to teach you how to be a better person, good luck. You're not going to pull it off. But if the teachings and sayings of the scripture are to lead you to despair of yourself so that you put your faith in Jesus because Jesus died for your sins and came back to life as real history so that there is hope for you, 
well, then the scripture makes sense. It's history. It really happened. The content that Luke is trying to communicate to us is real historical fact. This really happened to Jesus, and because of that, it's good news. If the story of Jesus is just legend, if it's just moral teaching, if it's just inspiration, then it might be good for some people, but at the end of the day, it's going to leave them in one of two places, either despairing and despondent because they realize they can't pull it off, that all the commands are impossible to keep and that they are a complete failure, or they'll start to think they're actually doing it, they're being a pretty good person, and they will get self-righteous and arrogant and self-absorbed. But if it's not teaching and it's history, then it breaks down every single person to the same level and says, it does not matter what you are doing, it matters what Christ is doing. See, in every other religious system, the centerpiece is a teaching. Do these five pillars follow this eightfold path, live this way, love this way, but not Christianity. Christianity says your salvation is not based on your adherence to the law, but completely on Christ's adherence to the law. Your salvation is not based on your behavior, but completely on Christ's behavior. And that is good news. When you're sitting in the waiting room to hear the results, when you're sitting on the gurney waiting to hear the diagnosis, when your child goes rogue or makes a bad decision, when you can't seem to fix your relationship, when your spouse cheats, when the depression is crippling, when the anxiety can't let you get out the front door, do you really need someone to inspire you to be a better person? Or do you need someone to save you? The historicity of the Christian message that Christmas really happened is good news. And you heard it here first. It's not a novel, it's not a legend, it's real history that impacts your life. And God made this good news known to all people so that there could be peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And for the next four weeks, we're going to unpack that historical narrative. We're going to see in four ways how God tells the message, reports it to four different people or groups of people. We're going to walk through how God tells Mary, how he tells Joseph, how he tells the shepherds, and how he tells the wise men. But on Christmas Eve, we're going to focus specifically on how God tells you this good news. But I hope that he doesn't just tell you on Christmas Eve. I hope he tells more people than are just here. I hope he tells more people than those who are part of our congregation. And so to make that happen, we're going to give you each a My Personal Mission Field piece of paper. And you grab it on the way out at guest services. It's a red piece of paper with white blanks on it. It's a chance for you to organize your life to see who are the people in my life that I can invite to hear this good news on Christmas Eve. I want you to take one for each family unit. I believe a whole family together can fill out all the blanks on that sheet. And maybe you can't. That's fine. But I challenge each of us to do three. Can you find three people in your life who need to hear the good news on Christmas Eve? To employ you a little bit better, we're going to give you invitation cards to Christmas Eve that are also back at guest services. We ask that you grab as many of those as you think you're going to need to invite people to hear that good news. I hope that we can bring 150 people into here on Christmas Eve. That would be amazing. When you think about it, our average attendance is about 70 or 80. If each of us brought one person along, we would hit that number. And that would be a great time to hear the good news that this true story happened for us. 
So as you walk home today, I want you to remember this thing, this statement, excuse me. If Luke is teaching, it's devastating. But if it's history, then it's good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, tell us again the good news. That despite our failure, despite our actions, good or bad, you have come in the flesh to be the Savior of all of us. Empower us to find people in our lives who need to hear that good news. Make those conversations happen this week or this month so that more can hear, so that more can believe. And I pray that as this message goes out into this community again at this Christmas, through all the congregations of this area, that more would be brought to know that you are good and that you have saved us. Amen.